Our colleague James Grimaldi has been working on a big investigation that started with a simple question. Well, it began last year when I was asked to look into the finances of Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett. James started looking into Barrett's finances. She'd been serving as a federal judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. He was looking to see if she'd had any conflicts of interest. To do that, he had to go through all the cases she'd heard and keep track of every company involved, every plaintiff, and every defendant. It was taking a lot longer than he expected. And I was putting all of the data into a spreadsheet, and I thought, someone, somewhere, must have digitized this. Why am I doing this? So I started asking around, like, has someone digitized this? James started thinking beyond just Barrett's records. He started wondering whether there were any databases with every financial conflict a federal judge might have. Eventually, he found a guy who he thought might have it. But that guy said, Well, I don't have it. But this guy out in Oakland does. I'm like, what? (laughs) And he works for this nonprofit called the Free Law Project. And he's had this project going on for several years to obtain from the administrative office of the courts every financial disclosure for every federal judge and digitize it. So I immediately called him, and it was like he was waiting for my call. (laughs) (laughs) He was ready, and that was, you know, the beginning of a year-long effort. That year-long effort led to an investigation into the cases these judges had handled and whether they'd handled the cases properly. And now, the results of that investigation have been published. More than 100 federal judges across the country broke the law between 2010 and 2018, meaning they oversaw cases where they had a financial interest. We found it very hard to believe that it was actually true that so many judges were breaking the law. I mean, these are judges. They're lawyers. Judges interpret the law. They enforce the law. They don't break the law. But, you know, judges very rarely receive any kind of scrutiny, federal judges in particular, And they're used to being sort of the the king and queens of their own domain. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, October 1st. Coming up on the show, the federal law that judges have broken and a closer look at the judge who's broken it the most. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. James started off reporting on Amy Coney Barrett. But once he got access to that giant database of judges and their cases, he realized he could do much more than investigate one judge. 
he could use this data to look into conflicts of interest for all federal judges to see if judges presided over cases where they had a financial interest. But to figure that out, he needed help. I'm not a data dude, so I needed a data dude. (laughs) So I went to my editors and they say, hey, Coulter Jones is working on something similar. Now, he didn't have this data, he didn't know about it. So Coulter and I ended up partnering immediately and started working on it. Coulter and James were looking into whether judges violated a specific law, one that passed in 1974 in the wake of Nixon's resignation. So around that time, there were a lot of reforms and a lot of ethics reforms. And Congress created this black and white rule. They had hearings. They had judges testify. You use this term, it's a black and white law. What does that mean? Well, it means it's supposed to be very clear cut. It's meant to be a bright line. It's meant to be a, a case in which if you do X, you must do Y. If you own X, you must do Y. This law says that judges have to recuse themselves from any case where they have a financial interest. So if judges, their spouses, or minor children have any, even a small financial interest, in a plaintiff or a defendant in their court, the judges must disqualify themselves from the case. It was mostly trying to protect the integrity of the court. It was trying to protect the confidence that we have in the United States for American jurisprudence. And anything, however small, that could cast any doubt or any bias or any appearance of bias by a judge, they wanted to just completely eliminate that. And so how does the law work in practice? What is supposed to happen? What they're supposed to do is take all their investments and create a list a recusal list, and they submit that to the clerk of the court. After judges make the list of companies whose cases they should recuse themselves from, the list is uploaded into a database that's meant to flag possible conflicts as they arise. And how often are judges recusing themselves from these cases? Is this a commonplace occurrence? Well, we don't know. Why? Because they have this computer system that may screen it before they ever get assigned the case. Or they may get assigned it and they reject it because they have the stock. So there's no record of this. It's not available online. Now, there are cases where a judge will accidentally get assigned it. They'll realize they have a conflict and they will notify the court. But it's our understanding that most of the cases that are screened out, we never know about. James and Coulter wanted to see if they could actually identify if these judges had been involved in potential conflicts of interest. So they went through all the documents and research they received from the nonprofit in Oakland, plus more. They had one database that identified judges' assets and another database of court records. They wanted to use these two to identify potential conflicts. But they needed a reporter who had extensive experience in the legal world. And that's when we needed Joe Palazzolo as well, because we had a long list of potential conflicts. And the only way to confirm that these were really conflicts was to go through them in a laborious, painstaking, case-by-case review. The team did this work for months. Looking at the case and looking at the case docket and seeing, did the judge actually hold this stock, hold this 
interest in this company at the same time that the company was a plaintiff or a defendant in the case. We literally had to look at timelines to make sure that we actually had them. And then, of course, we reached out to every judge. The team of three worked with one another to write and build computer programs that would scrape this data and present it in different graphs and tables so they could understand the conflicts. And what they found was that out of roughly 700 federal judges they investigated around the country, between the years of 2010 and 2018, over 130 judges had inappropriately heard cases. More than 680 cases. It was more of a like, are you really seeing what I'm seeing? Are these judges really doing this? Is this really happening? Are these judges really violating the law over and over again? I mean, it was we didn't really believe it at first. I mean, for a long time. It's like, is there something we don't understand about this? Judges gave James and the team a range of explanations for their errors. Several blamed court clerks. Others blamed misspellings on forms. Some said they only took minimal action in the cases. But the law doesn't make many exceptions. And James says that in many cases, judges owned thousands of dollars of stock in companies that appeared in their courtrooms. I can't get into the mind of a judge and know why they own fifteen dollars to $50,000 in stock in Exxon and then approves a $25 million settlement in favor of Exxon and then adds on $8 million in interest. I don't know. Does he know and remember when he's making that decision that he owns Exxon? I don't know about you, Kate, but if I own between fifteen dollars and $50,000 stock in Exxon, I'd know it. But, you know, other people's portfolios are handled differently. The judge in that case was unaware of his violation, according to an official in the New York federal court. The official said the screening software failed to identify the judge's conflict. And after James and the team reached out, the court clerk notified the parties in the case. But even when judges are unaware of the violation, the law doesn't really care. I mean, I interviewed one judge, and he said, well, I deliberately don't even know what's in my holdings. My wife handles it all. And I said, well, judge, you know, the law requires you to know what you own. And he said, well, that's news to me. And I'm like, you're a judge. You're supposed to know the law, but the law you don't know about is the law that applies to you. He didn't really have much of an answer, and he later conceded that he had been in error. Was that a frequent occurrence when you reached out to judges, that they said they were unaware of the law and later conceded their error? We had that in a couple of cases. There was another case of a judge in the Southern District of California, and she initially said, well, my spouse's trust does not apply here. And we said, well, judge, yes, it does. And then she said, we're, we're not going to talk about it anymore. And we said, well, we're, we're going to write about it. And, and she filed notices in all of her cases where she had conflicts re- regarding that trust that essentially admitted that she was wrong and that she should have disqualified in those cases. After the break, the judge who had the most conflicts. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, 
Create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Voice API, you get comprehensive call analytics, virtual assistance, automated speech recognition, and text-to-speech benefits across multiple languages. Developers can add smart voice functionalities into your app, giving your customers an easier way to reach you. And you can start collecting real-time data to drive more meaningful engagement to move your business forward. Learn more at Vonage.com. According to the journal Investigation, one federal judge failed to recuse himself dozens more times than any other judge. His name is Judge Rodney Gilstrap, and he presides in Texas. He is an Eagle Scout. He's a beekeeper who likes to hand out jars of his honey, which he has labeled sweet justice. He's active in his communities, involved in a couple of nonprofit organizations. And I think he's, you know, relatively prominent, well-respected. He's married to Sherry Gilstrap, who owns a flower shop in Marshall, Texas. And Mrs. Gilstrap had a trust that was created in her name by her parents that ended up becoming a part of this story. And when did Judge Gilstrap become a federal judge? Judge Gilstrap was appointed by President Barack Obama. He took the bench in 2011. Okay, so can you tell us what your investigation found related to Judge Gilstrap? Sure. So Judge Gilstrap had 138 conflicts by our count where he owned stock in companies or his wife's trust owned stock in companies or his or his wife's investment account owned stock in companies that appeared before Judge Gilstrap. In one example, McDonald's was a defendant in a patent case. Judge Gilstrap says he initially recused himself because he owned shares in the company. And the case was taken by another judge, and then another judge. And eventually, months later, it boomeranged back to Judge Gilstrap. But this time, he decided to take the case. McDonald's was no longer a defendant in the suit. But James and the team discovered that in this case, there were still five other companies that Judge Gilstrap had an interest in. Of the more than two dozen companies that were parties, Judge Gilstrap's disclosure forms showed investments in five, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan, plus Microsoft Target and Walmart. Judge Gilstrap said he didn't need to recuse himself in this case because the stocks in question are held in his wife's trust. He said he checked the trust characteristics against ethics guidance provided to other federal judges. And he believes that the structure of his wife's trust means recusal isn't required. But he has not said, well, she has no interest in the trust, despite our asking him several times. He has not said she has no equitable interest in the trust. He's just saying that she didn't basically own title to the trust. 
But, you know, the way trusts work, you have a trustee and then you have a beneficiary. And the interpretation of the law has been if you are a beneficiary, then you're going to benefit from it. And if you're going to benefit from it or your wife's going to benefit from it, then you can't hear that case. What's interesting is you describe the origins of this law as black and white. It was a black and white law. But it feels like in your investigation, you found all of this gray. Oh, yeah, there's some gray in there. You know, over the past 47 years, investments have gotten complicated. So, you know, we have all kinds of investment vehicles that didn't exist in 1974. The bare bones of the law and the code have been left to the judges themselves to interpret whether or not these various investment vehicles apply. What's the status of Judge Gilstrap's cases where you identified a conflict of interest? Judge Gilstrap, at this point, has not gone into court and notified parties that he should have disqualified that I know of. Judge Gilstrap said in many cases his role was so minimal that recusal wasn't necessary. In other instances, judges responded differently. After James and the team alerted them to violations, 57 judges acknowledged they should have recused themselves, and they directed court clerks to notify parties in more than 300 lawsuits. What happens next? The judges have notified the clerks in more than 300 cases. What is the impact of that? Well, if you are plaintiff or defendant in a case where a judge had a conflict and you've already settled, you've put that check in the bank, you've moved on, you've resolved your difference. It's highly unlikely in those cases you're going to go in and ask to reopen. However, we have cases that are pending and we have a lot of people, in many cases, they're uh, people who represented themselves and felt like they got a raw deal, or if a case involving Exxon and TIG Insurance immediately went to the Court of Appeal and asked to put everything on hold, and the Court of Appeal agreed, and it's on hold and now back into the judge's court in order to decide what to happen. What does this investigation say about the judicial system? It says about the judicial system that very rarely are judges scrutinized for their financial disclosures, maybe once a decade. And part of that is because there's not a lot of vision into that. They just don't get that kind of accountability or scrutiny because it's difficult to see into these cases. I mean, sure, judges are challenged when they have a ruling and they go to a court of appeal. And they're used to being challenged on a ruling on the law that may go to the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, but they're definitely not accustomed to being asked about their personal finances. That's all for today, Friday, October 1st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knudsen and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is produced by Priscilla Alabi, Catherine Brewer, Pia Godkari, Brendan Klinkenberg, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Matthew Sherman, Kayla Stokes, and Annie Rose Strasser. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner, Nathan Singapak, and Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. 
Additional music this week from Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, So Wiley, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Also, look out for part six of the Facebook files in your feed Sunday night. Thanks for listening. See you Sunday.